Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra. We pay our respects to Elders from all nations listening today, and to their Elders past, present and future. Hi, and welcome back to the Arrow Libraries podcast. I'm Megan, and I'm here today with Nell, my co-host for the Short Story Club. In the Short Story Club, we read one short story a month and discuss it in our currently online meetings. You can find the details to book into those sessions on our website. But for now, we're going to discuss Daphne du Maurier's The Birds. A reminder, we do thoroughly spoil the story in these episodes, so they're best enjoyed after you've already read the story in question. So if you go and see our show notes, uh, you can find details on where to find this story. Now, go have a read and we'll wait for you to come back. Now, for those people who might have read the story, but perhaps a little while ago, do you want to briefly summarise it for our listeners? Absolutely. So The Birds is a horror story by British writer Daphne du Maurier. Um, it was published in 1952 and it tells the story of a farmhand, his family and his community that are attacked by flocks of birds um, and it's set in Cornwall where Demoria lived and by the end of the story it becomes clear that all of Britain is under attack by these birds and really the, bird, the story kind of follows the um, protagonist Nats. Basically he's kind of resourcefulness and ingenuity in protecting his family from these attacks from the birds. The interesting thing there is a lot of places describe uh, Daphne du Maurier's short stories in particular as quite sort of as, as horror um, when they describe the genre. Was this a story that you found particularly horrifying? Horrifying is a very strong word, Megan. Um, <laughs> but... Yes, it gave me chills. I read this at work up in Bugungan at Bugungan in North Fitzroy Library. I read it at work and I was upstairs on my own on level two and it was quiet and there was no one around. And I, the further into it I got, the more chills and goosebumps I got and just that feeling of just like creepiness and eeriness. Um, I don't, you know, horror is, is is a strong word. But it was frightening and and unsettling and disturbing um, and certainly gave me chills as I read it. How did you find it? So I did feel like the story was unsettling, but I probably wouldn't describe it as as horror or horrifying. But it did actually have a lot of other sort of genre elements that I did recognise, particularly when you pointed them out, Nell, is is that it follows a track that's very familiar to a disaster movie or a disaster story, um, be it sort of an old one like Day of the Triffids or War of the Worlds or a contemporary one that's about some sort of like earthquake or asteroid or something like that. It's that this um, huge threat that's sort of threatening everybody really and it's made personal through us following, uh, in that case, a small family unit and that's what makes it, that's how we experience this disaster that's too large to really recognize otherwise it's how it's made personal to us yeah well absolutely as I was reading it I was like god this feels familiar this feels so familiar and I think it was because Nat and Nat's resourcefulness really reminded me of pretty much every disaster film I've ever seen where there's like a dad 
that is protecting his family against all odds. You know, like 2012, <laughs> I think 2012 with, with John Cusack. I love, I love a bit of John Cusack. Um, yeah. You know, in the limo, have you seen 2012? I have not seen 2012, sorry. It's pretty funny, but it's just got that kind of, um, you know, like just the dad that, you know, picks up on everything a bit earlier than everyone else, is a bit smarter than everyone else. And that kind of like, I don't know, the resourceful everyman kind of guy, I just felt like it was a really familiar, familiar stereotype or or role. And I don't know whether, you know, maybe this could be the first one. Maybe Nat is really the first disaster dad. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Um, I, I think definitely is this sort of a character that's popped up in in disaster stories before this this point, but um, it does feel like a very familiar character type to be sure. Um, and and yeah, I did quite enjoy that how it's it's everyone else isn't quite as careful as him or isn't quite as perceptive as him, and that's what makes him able to kind of overcome this disaster in a way, or at least keep his family safe for the part that we're reading. Uh, so one of the reasons, one of the things that's used to explain how he is able to be this this capable, resourceful person is it's mentioned that he's on a pension after the war. And I think we can kind of see the the effects of having lived through the Second World War on this story in, in a few different ways. Now, what elements do you, do you think sort of really lined up with that experience of of what was the great disaster of the time, the Second World War? I mean, so much of it really, you know. I mean, even the fact that the birds are kind of kamikaze birds, you know, that they are willing to um, to die to defeat the enemy. The it's There's just so much of it that is is that would remind – I mean, I've never lived through a, a world war, so I've got no idea. But, um, yeah, the whole story in terms of the way that they're, they're listening to the BBC for updates and – they're having to black out the windows, um, all that kind of stuff. The birds have attacked and they can't go outside, but there are different parts of the day in which they can go outside and gather supplies and then suddenly the tides change, I think, and they have to go back inside again while there's an attack. That really made me think of sort of the blitz, but there were also elements that made me think of any community in a disaster. So there were people in our in our meeting who talked about how it reminded them of having to stay inside during the bushfires a year ago um, and how there were times where it was just too dangerous to be outside because of the smoke. And there were people who said it reminded them of the pandemic, of needing to, to stay inside and make do with what you had because it was dangerous to be outside. So I think that there are bits here that while they're tied very much into a specific historical moment that Daphne du Maurier lived through personally, I think that that it definitely, like, there, there are elements that resonate. And maybe that's why we keep being attracted to these disaster stories. Perhaps in some way they help us make sense of the disasters that we do live through. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so something that came up for us a lot and we talked quite a lot about was about what the birds actually symbolise. Did that come up for you in your group and did you have any theories about what they might symbolise? So, yeah, that did come in for ours because um, I know there's a point in it at which one of the characters said, oh, it was probably the Russians who have poisoned the birds. Um, and I know you've mentioned that there were kind of a few ideas online about how the birds in some way represented the, the threat of communism. And that wasn't something that in our group we felt rang particularly true to us. Daphne de Maurier seems to go to really great pains to describe that the birds are part of the natural landscape. Nat mm -hmm. talks a lot about how they're the birds that he sees every day. They're just acting in a unusual way, a way that's hard to 
predict or understand. And that's actually, I think, what makes it so unsettling is that these birds are so much a part of the landscape and a part of every day, but suddenly suddenly they're not normal anymore. Suddenly they're a threat. Mm. Um, so I think it has this kind of idea about nature turning on us in some ways um, inherent in that, which I thought was really interesting and, and not something that I'd really teased out very much. But there were people in our group who um, who thought that this had quite an environmental message to it, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Our group was the same. You know, given my kind of opinion on COVID and that 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 COVID not only kind of scientifically is to do with uh, the way that we live in the 21st century in terms of um, overpopulation and impinging on uh, natural natural habitat of animals, um, I also feel like you know the Earth, planet Earth, has got a is survival mechanism like any living thing. And that COVID could be related to the way that we treat the planet. So that I came to it with that kind of belief. And then they, they, the people in my group talked about that they think that that's what this story is about. They thought that the the birds signified mother's nature ability to fight back. And that, and interestingly, just a couple of things came up. And so, yeah, so we talked about how on, you know, different websites online, or there's some theories that the birds might um, symbolise the Cold War or um, being invaded by Russia and things like that or, you know, kind of being invaded by communism. But there's when you really look at the story, it doesn't really feel like that because the birds are tied, their behaviour is tied to the tides, to to nature. The way that they behave is, um, is so kind of, yeah, tied closely to the natural world and even at the end there's this line um I'll find it right now so it says okay Nat listened to the tearing sound of splintering wood and wondered how many millions years of memory were stored in those little brains behind the stabbing beaks the piercing eyes now giving them this instinct to destroy mankind with all the deft precision of machines so yeah, talk. I don't know. It kind of alludes to this idea that um, humans aren't particularly uh, a friend to the planet, a friend to nature. Not in the way that we've treated nature in the last, you know, few thousand years or last few hundred years. And yeah, that possibly if we don't respect nature, we could be in real trouble. What do you think about that, Megan? I have to admit, at first I was a little bit sceptical about that, thinking, oh, this was written in the early 50s. Was there really that sort of environmentalist style movement or thoughts at that time? And a few of the people in the group did a bit of um, a bit of Googling to see if they could find any specific events. And there was a lot about air pollution at the time that was being discussed in England um, particularly and the effect that that had had on migratory birds and on nature. So it seems like it is quite likely that that played a factor in the creation of the birds. Absolutely. Um, And even if she didn't consider herself an environmentalist, I think that she had a very healthy respect for nature. I read something in some article about her how she said she was only ever happy in the middle of a hailstorm on the cliffs in a, you know, an hour before sunset, um, at, you know, in late November when it's cold and windy and awful. So I think that she did have a close relationship with nature and although she, her politics might not have kind of lent in an environmentalist way, that she, yeah, understood nature and understood its kind of power. And also that 
if nature did fight back, that our technology just becomes completely useless. I thought that was really interesting in the story as well. That was a really good point, the way that um, the men were standing around with their guns and they were like, oh, do you want to come on, stay and we'll, we'll give them what for? And he was able to recognise quite easily that what could you possibly do? What could guns possibly do against an entire sky full of birds? 100%. And even the fact that so they hear the planes and they think, oh, they're coming to save us, but then the planes crash because what good is a plane against birds that will, you know, suicidally fly into the engine? Um, I think you really hit on something there where you were talking about um, about Daphne du Maurier and the way she felt about uh, the natural world. Um, I've been reading a few of the biographies about her and about how she didn't really like to be in company and the only place that she felt she was truly happy was really was around in Cornwall, um, out sort of traipsing through nature. And I think you can really tell that in this story in the way that like one of the reasons why it feels so evocative is that the descriptions of the like the behavior of the birds and of the landscape and how it changes slowly they feel really they're really evocative and they feel very authentic they feel like someone who's spent a lot of time observing nature which is obviously what we believe of Nat reading this but I don't think you could write a character that has that background and that observation authentically if you didn't also have that yourself. So I think there was one anecdote apparently about a, a boyfriend that proposed to her at one point and she pretty much to paraphrase hugely, but basically was like, oh, I mean, only if I can just um, go off to Cornwall and write whenever I want because otherwise, nah. Um, <laughs> so um, so um, there was a lot to say that her connection to, to place was a lot stronger than her and more lasting than her connection to any one yes. person. And tell us about the the house that she lived in, this Mena, what was it called? Uh, Mena Billy, which Mena I think was Billy. the inspiration for, um, for Mandalay. Um, for the, the yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if anyone's watched recently, there was a net, recent Netflix adaptation of Rebecca, which is very shiny and pretty, but um, I'd also love to recommend the Hitchcock adaptation as well, um, which is quite great. But yeah, she really felt this um, such a strong connection to this um, to this old rundown mansion, I suppose, with grounds that she and her sisters used to explore when they were kids. That she rented it for a long time as an adult once she'd made her fortunes off her off her books and selling her books for films. That she rented this um, gigantic rundown house, even though there were whole portions of it that needed to be closed off because they were dangerous. Um, even though it meant at times not being near the rest of her family or her husband, things like that. That this place just spoke to her so strongly that it was where she felt she needed to be for a big chunk of her life whenever it was possible. So yeah, she really did seem to have a, a really strong connection to to place and that seemed to be the way these places were described in in the biography was that they were muses to her the same way as people were muses to her during her life Mm. so that they had that same um I think she called them pegs for her imagination we talked about in the book how um the portrayal of the wife was not Mm. I mean she I don't think she even gets a name we had a lovely uh, attendee whose male said that he was very disappointed because she didn't do much, she didn't have much agency, she didn't have uh, much of a role in the story. Um, and, you know, as we've talked about, Nat is portrayed as this incredible hero, um, this resourceful, resilient, clever, you know, father that's going to 
do do anything you can to protect his family, but she is not portrayed in that kind of light. Um, did that come up in your group at all when you talked about the story? And what did you think about the portrayal of the wife? Yeah, we did have a little bit of a discussion about it. I think um, I think uh, something our group brought up, which is important for us to remember, is that, that the wife is not the protagonist in this story, that it makes sense that most of our detail is going to be with, with Nat as the main character. But also that idea of, of him as as capable um, and and strong ties in very well to Daphne du Maurier's ideas about gender. She was never really, and obviously I'm talking about the conclusions drawn by one particular biography here. I haven't read mm-hmm. a bunch of them or anything, and I'm sure they draw different conclusions. Um, but uh, most of them say she was never really a huge fan of women in general and that she she thought that her her creative self came from came from an, from an idealized boy self from um, mm. who was strong and and capable and none of these things that women were associated with and she didn't want to be associated with those things that the the feminine or the fragile or the um, that those were all things that she she thought were a lot less important and less heroic in some way um, and I, I think that that knowing that you can certainly see elements of that in in this story in the father being um, quite heroic and capable and sensible and um, and just offering a lot more to the story and to the narrative push than than the sort of women and children do mm, absolutely. Um, so not super surprising but also definitely something that that as you mentioned, ties into a lot of disaster narratives really that the heroic father figure is is one that's that's quite common in these sort of stories absolutely absolutely so i was editing a podcast actually today about spider sorry goldstein and in that podcast the two authors were talking about how in who spider goldstein was a suffragette and an activist um in australia in the early 20th century and um she was kind of a mover and a shaker for the rights of women and they talked about how in Vida's time there was this ideology that men were these kind of strong, stable wooden poles and women were the, the creeping or the clinging vine. And that was the kind of ideology that Vida was fighting against with all her activism and her work. Interestingly, in this story, that's I, you, I really saw that reflected um, and it's like she can't, it's almost like De Maurier, you know, subscribes to that idea because the wife literally, literally clings to the husband at one stage when he's going out to, to do something to fight for their survival. The, I feel like the relationship is strong in the story. You know, she's not painted like a, a as if she's a, a total sap, but I do feel like, yeah, you can see that Daphne De Maurier might subscribe to that idea that, you know, men are the strong, stable, capable ones and, and women have to depend and cling to men. But then she was in love with a woman as well, at one, you know, for a long time. She had a loving relationship with a woman, but maybe isn't that it's a quite strange idea, isn't it, that she could hate women at the same time but and love them as well, you know. I mean, I, I think hate's a very strong word. I think there were, there were women that she idealised quite strongly and and one of those was Ellen Doubleday actually and she found it very hard to live up to Daphne du Maurier's idealized version of her and I think one of the other women that she idealized a lot was um was an actress who actually played the character that was based on 
on Double Day in one of the play adaptations of another one of her stories. So, I, but I, I think that one can have a greater idea of the sense of like a, a man's sort of capabilities in the world, or at least certainly could have at that particular time, while still idealizing or appreciating people of the opposite gender or of another gender as well. So I don't think it's necessarily a, a contradiction for her to have have idealized certain women and to have also felt that women were in some way less valuable than than men because um she also was quite um like she was very disappointed when she had little girls and mm. was apparently thrilled when she finally got a boy as the third mm. child which just was quite sad to read today yeah. to think those poor girls to have been thought of as as somehow lesser and to yes. have been treated differently to to their younger brother. It's quite sad, really. It is. It's so interesting. I find it fascinating just for hearing you talk at work, having read that biography, about her kind of issues with gender and stuff. I just, yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely fascinating. She was certainly an interesting person. Um, So the biography is actually about um, her and her two sisters who are also pretty fascinating. Not sure having read them that I, I would necessarily say they were all you know quotation mark nice people but gosh they were interesting mm. um, which is really what you want of a um, of a biography really so you absolutely. want them to be interesting people and they were absolutely that so I would really recommend um, not just reading more of Daphne du Maurier's work but um, Jane Dunn's biography Daphne du Maurier and her sisters I think it was the private lives of Piffy Bird and Bing so we have a copy of that in our collection don't understand don't ask me how they got Piffy, Bird and Bing from um, Daphne and Angela and um, et cetera, but, um, <laughs> but apparently those were their nicknames. Um, but, uh, yeah, really, really fascinating biography. And there are a lot of writers whose work I love but who I wouldn't necessarily be rushing out to read a biography of their lives. But, um, but yeah, Daphne du Maurier was definitely a, a fascinating character. So this story is a bit longer than a lot of the ones that we've read previously, and I kind of feel like it has two stages to it. There's the first one where there's that slowly building dread, and then there's the second stage in which the birds are attacking and they're trying to sort of fight for their survival. And then the story pretty much stops before there is a third act of finding out what happens in the future. Like mm-hmm. the, the birds, there's a pause, the birds are likely to attack again, and it's just I think Nat pulls out a cigarette and has a smoke, doesn't he? Or he's just yes. sort of having a think really um, in this sort of calm before the next storm. And that's just where the story stops. How did you find that? A little bit disappointing. I mean, I've always like, you know, I always like an ending that um, a satisfying ending. Who doesn't? But I don't. You don't don't like (laughs) a satisfying ending. No, I, I do enjoy a satisfying ending, but I actually, in a short story, I quite love a, a non a sort of unconclusive ending, to be honest. I like things to be left open to interpretation there. So, but that's good. It would be very boring, this podcast, if we agreed on everything. Absolutely. And we've talked about in the past how a short story is often defined by having a kind of twist or some kind of sharp ending. And it's and the thing that makes it a short story as opposed to a chapter in a book is the fact that it's got a, begin, a beginning, a middle and an end. And this doesn't have that in terms of the ending. I, I really enjoyed this in terms of I just tore through it. I just wanted to find out what was happening because I felt that it just the sense of urgency she builds throughout the story was just second to none, really. I thought it was quite brilliant in the way she did it and just that urgency when the father's picking up the daughter from school, 
you know, and and he's and he's there half an hour early and waiting for the bus and then you just want to, you just want him and his daughter to get inside the house and kind of reading it like you're sitting on the edge of your seat as you know if you're watching a really good um thriller or something um so I did there was part of me that was tearing through it wanting that satisfying ending wanting to know what happened but I do I don't mind that it left us to to decide ourselves because I am a kind of eternal optimist and I will always try and find the positive in things. And so for me, after what happens in the third act that we don't, you know, we don't read is that they survive in my mind. You know, like I always love a happy ending. So for me, if she had, if the ending had been really bleak that everyone dies, I might not have gotten as much out of it. So I quite liked the fact that I'm able to make up my own mind and bring my own positive outlook to this story that could be quite bleak. What did you think about the length and the ending of this story? I really enjoyed it. I do like an, an ending that leaves it really open to your own imagination. And I think I've sort of read enough disaster stories that follow a similar arc, whether it's, you know, War of the Worlds or Day of the Triffids or things like that, that you can kind of fill in your own blanks about how it ends if you feel the need. But I, I kind of loved that the focus was really on on the event itself and it does just leave it right in the middle of it I, th- I thought that was really well done and I think it keeps our focus on those those first first parts but I know that's not what everyone will, will find satisfying so a few people in our meeting did feel that they would prefer to to know what happened afterwards that they want the that they started filling in a lot of the gaps but I personally I, I don't think it really matters what comes after that I think that what we're what we're left with is is really interesting in and of itself mm. We talked about it in the group about what people thought happened um, after the end and, you know, me being the eternal optimist, I thought they survived, but other people in the group did not have the same idea. And they talked about the cigarette packet that you mentioned and something about the image of him throwing that empty packet on the fire and watching it burn. And I was like, oh, no, does that mean that they don't have a happy ending? What do you The reckon? world is going to burn. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> What do you think? Do you, I mean, what do you think happens in the third act? Uh, look, I mean, I, I, it's, it's not something I, I really speculated about, um, but I suppose if I had to fill it in, I'd go with something along the lines of like like a typical John Wyndham sort of disaster one in which they, you know, manage to escape and band together with other survivors and eventually and build some sort of complex on some deserted farm where they can, you know, repel the birds as needed and then eventually someone comes up with some sort of cure and it's maybe it's some sort of audio sensory <laughs> thing that disrupts the birds and, you know, like all that sort of thing. But I, I don't really feel the need to kind of kind of fill it in to be honest so <laughs> you just wrote a novel you just finished you filled it in seconds with such precise detail I, I think other other disaster writers have probably already done it for me if, if I felt the need but no totally. I don't quite 100%. like it as it is so. that's what I thought too 100% I was like yes they'll survive uh, yeah they'll, they'll band together with other people totally 
Yeah, um, it, it does have the kind of feel of that sort of disaster story of that time in which, you know, pluckiness and British ingenuity in the end saves the day or some such. So, so you know, I've been reading the Daphne du Maurier biography recently and, and that took me a while to get through. It is quite a chunky book. So I was reading a few other things at the time. But Nell, have you been reading or watching anything interesting recently that you'd like to share with our listeners? I, Megan, I am not reading at the moment and it's breaking my heart because I'm trying to learn the guitar. And the time, my reading time, which would probably be about the half an hour before bed, because I've got three kids often, and I also love to watch a bit of telly with my husband because I'm so tired. So often that half an hour before bed is now spent on the guitar, um, trying to get better at it because it's a long, slow process. So I'm not reading. I'm literally still a third of the way to one of the third Eleanor Ferrante uh, my Brilliant Friends series, Neapolitan series. So I'm still a third of the way through that. I am going away with my husband for five nights, knock on wood, um, depending on lockdown dependent, and without the kids. And I am so excited because I can take some books and actually read them. And so, <laughs> Megan, we've got, I was telling you about this at work, but we've booked, we've got a, a beautiful hotel for two nights and then we've got we've got an old a quaint old uh, Airbnb church that is literally on the edge of a forest that has hammocks. And I'm literally right now thinking about what Jane Austen book I'm going to take to reread in the church. And I think I'm going to take Persuasion because I know it less than the others. So it'll be a little bit fresh. What do you think? That sounds blissful. That sounds like a really lovely experience. Um, I also love that the thing you're most excited about this time with your husband is the reading you're going to get done. <laughs> yes. um, so I would feel exactly the same way. So th- that's wonderful. Um, uh, my fingers are definitely crossed for you that the that the holiday takes off and you and you you get to go on that because that sounds really nice. And my sister also has lent me Girl Woman Other. Have you read that? You are in for a treat, Nell. It was a book that I read because in my job, if something wins a major award, I feel like I ought to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also one that I was quite excited to, and I just just loved it. Like it was just, um, it had it's one of those books that skips between numerous points of view that all tie together in some way, and I just like loved every minute of it. So oh. it's a really entertaining book that I think you'll really enjoy. Fantastic, so. great. I'm going to get into that next. Tell me about what you've been reading or watching. I've been watching the uh, sixth season of The Expanse recently. So it's the space opera series uh, based on the, I think his name is James S.A. Corey, but there's a series of books that The Expanse is based on. And I just like, it's just really great classic space opera. It starts off as almost a detective story in the first series. Um, There's a lot of interplanetary politics and stuff going on. And there's like a proto-molecule, which is like this biological threat. So love it. It's great. But the series finished and I was feeling a bit bereft. I was like, I need some good space opera in my life. And there's not a huge amount of great space opera series to dive into. There's not usually a whole bunch running simultaneously, right? So instead, what I've been doing is I've been reading. So recently, I started Elizabeth Bear's White Space series. And I actually hadn't realized, but I started with the second book, Machine. And then I'm currently reading the first book, Ancestral Night. And they're, they're great, big, honking sort of four, four to 500 page books. And it has just everything you want in a space opera, effectively. Um, this is set in a particular world in which people can kind of control their own brain chemistry. It's described as like one of the ways that humans have 
managed to rise above their more animal impulses and the things that stop them from working together and the things that stop them from being better as a species. I also thought it was really interesting um, that some of the way the characters thought about that was tied to their to their daily realities. So the protagonist in in Machine lives with chronic pain and has since she was a child. So the idea of getting outside assistance in order to to manage uh, parts of um, of her experience is really something that's valuable to her and allows her to do a whole lot of things that would have been quite difficult otherwise. So I just thought it was really interesting that it's a very action-packed story that nonetheless has some really well-developed characters that, that I got really attached to. So I can really recommend that series. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast. Um, As we mentioned, this is a short story club episode. Um, And as always, you'll find the details of everything we've discussed today and more in our show notes. So please feel free to use that to add to your to read and your to watch list. If this episode inspired you to discuss some short stories with us, please book into one of our upcoming meetings. We'd love to see you there. Until then, stay well, everyone. Watch out for attack birds and we'll see you in the library.